welcome to the Nightmare Box presenting The Art of Wargaming. I am Yagamalark. And I'm Onishiro. And this is Deployment. So, real quick before we get into the episode, I wanted to correct some stuff that I said wrong in the last episode. We missed you, by the way. Uh, thumbs and did I great filling you. in. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we missed you very much. Um, but, yeah, so the, what I, I, I misquoted last time. I had said the wrong date for the Three Kingdoms period. It was actually 220 to 280 uh, BC. So that is a, a, a correction from what I had said before. Um, good catch, good catch. The other thing I said wrong is I, I even titled the whole thing the MacArthur concept. Um, when MacArthur never actually said the quote, the quote was, no plan survives the encounter with the enemy. And mm. MacArthur, as far as I could tell afterwards, I, I couldn't find any record of him saying that. What I did find was Clausewitz saying that, and mm. what I did find was probably Rommel quoting Clausewitz. So, um... There's a correction for that. Sorry about that, uh, if anybody caught that. So, Oni, you did Gladiators today. Yeah. How are the kids doing? It's interesting to see. It's Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, the biggest wave of this group of fighters is now entering senior year. Mm -hmm. And they also had a very strong presence to deal with throughout their career. Right. So this is a pressure-tested freshman to senior four-year gladiator group. And these guys are getting really good. And they're top dog now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's out of control. There was, what, four of them today that were seniors, and they were fighting like it, it was... It was good. Uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm seeing our influence consistently, like, heavily, like, along the fighting styles. It's, it's definitely there. Well, it's, it's such a treat. Like, it's, it's honestly the best thing about Bellagarth to me is doing the, the Gladiator Club and watching these mm-hmm. kids come in, like, it's freshman year, and they don't know anything about sword fighting. They don't know anything about fighting or, or the competitive spirit for the most part, with, with the rare exception of your uh, vanguards and such. Yeah. Um, but, but watching them go from that to when they're senior years and they are competent, not only do they have those basics, they have mastered the basics. They're starting to expand off of what you've taught them and develop their own individual styles with their own individual ways of doing things. And it is just it's the greatest joy as an instructor to see that growth Truly. And, and, to, and to be a part of it, you know, to get to be a, be a part of these people, these young people's growth and, and ascent into being veterans. Like it's just, it's a treat. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a, uh, they're, I mean, it's showing, you know, they're rusty and they're all like, Oh, we felt, we feel a little out of it. You know, we can def we're definitely out of shape. We haven't been practicing, you know, and I'm like, Oh, it's okay. You know, just got to knock the rust off. And then we go in there and they're like, and I'm like, Oh no, like this is not good. And they're like, Oh, I'm rusty. Like, Oh, you're, you're pretty rusty too. Oni. And I'm like, yeah, dude. Like, (laughs) no, and, 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 but that's absolutely the point. They've got those young bodies. And so for us, when we feel rusty, that's like, 
our bodies have actually started to do something else, but they are still teenagers. And so they're like, oh, I'm, I'm a little stiff. And it's like, you are still spryer than I am on my best day. Like, <laughs> shut up. Yeah, uh, I feel you. Yeah, for me, it was, um, it was the uh, mentality. I was just a little rusty getting back into the uh, fighting mindset. I have been riding like mad uh, anywhere from 9 to 26, 30 low 30s miles, you know, a day, multiple four to seven days a week. And, uh, so I didn't get tired at all. Sure. Your cardio is probably doing great. (laughs) Yeah. It was phenomenal. But my, my, uh, counter fighting was rusty, was super rusty. You know, I was, I went into it thinking they were going to be rusty a year ago, Mm -hmm. rusty two years ago. No, no, no. They're rusty this year. And that was pretty tight no flats. You know, I was super impressed. First 40 minutes was so clean. I let him do weapon of choice. Wow. Second week. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you who who have not been a part of the gladiator program, we usually wait at least a month up to like three or four months after the year begins to graduate them from single blue to style of choice, because we want to make sure that their technique is solid and they're not throwing flats and that they've got control of their shots before we start introducing things into their other hand or putting two hands on a weapon at one time. Mm. But what Oni's telling me right now is that these cats are so accomplished that he just said, well, here we go. Let's just do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they really felt like veterans. There was one new guy who I was, you know, had to help with flats, but he was still rolling single blue. Sure. So sure. we didn't try to overextend it all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, everyone was throwing really clean, sharp shots, you know, no. There's a couple, one fighter in particular who's usually really wild, mm-hmm. you know, was, he was great. He was on point, you know, very good honor, which is nice to see from him. And, uh, and he did throw a couple shots, uh, that could have been construed as aggressive towards the head, um, but, but he. Like fakes toward the head? No, they just, they started low and went high, both gotcha. of them. Gotcha, But he, he reeled it in. You know, I received one mm-hmm. as he was dropping down. So he was doing a drop shot and I was moving in and uh, it came up and got me. But that was a change of fighter position. So it was definitely accidental. It wasn't intended to be a headshot. Sure, sure. And, uh, and then I saw him throw another one uh, that was more like standing to standing fighter coming up, you know, uh, from armpit towards other side of chest. And it was just a little too facey. And then I saw the, the shot dissipate and he stopped throwing it. Well, good. So, so he called himself on it. Yeah, absolutely. So I, on all ends, I've been really impressed with where the fighting's at already, which is good. That means we're in a good spot. Well, I mean, I am just overjoyed to hear that not only are they uh, doing well skill-wise, but they are also policing themselves and uh, managing themselves in an honorable way. Like, that's that's honestly the best. When I first started this program, my intention was honestly to have it be a student-run program. That's what I wanted in the, mm. in the beginning. But after I graduated, or after I graduated from high school, uh, it was really hard to find high school students 
who were willing to take on that much more responsibility because it's it's really like an after school job because you're responsible for everything that happens there medically, legally, yep. and you report to the flagship coordinator. And so it's actually a lot more work than people would have thought. Sorry about that. Uh, j- just had to turn that off real quick. <laughs> Minor production <laughs> issues. No worries. You're um, forgiven. But uh, I was saying that, um, so it's a hard job. It's a hard job for a student, a high school student, to take on top of everything else that they're already doing. Because, I mean, especially high school students nowadays, they have to prepare for 10,000 different standardized tests in addition to, you know, learning the stuff they need to graduate from high school. It's So most of the time, the students, the student leadership is just not able to be there. But it's nice when it kind of fills in naturally, like it seems to be doing right now. Yeah. Definitely, and usually another thing, you know, that's on that same channel is a lot of times the students that qualify for that, like, the most, Mm -hmm. uh, are seniors, and traditionally that's been the worst time, Right. you know, like, we do, uh, at the school that we're talking about, we do, used to do senior projects, which is what I actually brought it up today because someone was asking, uh, and I said that's how you started the program. Mm -hmm. And they were, like, super aware of it, and they're like, oh, that was a senior project? And then they said, and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm dumb. I I taught one person martial arts for a senior project, let alone creating a legacy of teaching, so... Yeah, that was a good chuckle. But uh, I had the the nickname of high speed when I was in the army. I thought mm. it was a a good thing. I thought it was a compliment before I realized that it was a term for somebody who takes on entirely too many tasks and kind of makes everybody else look bad. They call them high speed. Um, Interesting. Never heard that. Yeah. So that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like slowing down and. Like I said, they were like, I was like, what can I do for my senior project? And they were like, you can do anything. And I was like, uh, are you sure about that? Because I'm fixing to start a gladiator school. You mean like a role-playing club? No, a real gladiator school. <laughs> yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I just love it. But uh, anyways, what I heard today is they stopped doing it. They stopped <laughs> doing senior projects because it was so impactful to the student grades oh. really it was it's with how much effort it takes up you know doing all all the senior project work and also working with someone shadowing a professional yep. like all this stuff it really more emulated like going to college and holding a job at the same time that's really what it emulated yeah yeah. And it really affected people in a very serious way. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, I, I most of the people I knew hated their senior project by the end of it. Uh, because between the senior project and the senior paper, which was a monster, um, yeah, it's a, it was a whole lot of work. I chose something that I am still passionate about to this day. Like I said, I did the gladiator school for my senior project. And then for my senior paper, I think it was actually like twice the length that it was supposed to be because I did it on violence and the human condition. And I found that I had no shortage of uh, supporting evidence for what I was trying to suggest. No kidding. So, I, I mean, like I said, I really enjoyed my senior project. Um, it was the most fun thing I probably did uh, in high school, uh, short of the music program. But I can also understand that if it's something that somebody's just doing so they can get a grade, 
um, and they're not really into it, and they're trying to do their SATs, and they're trying to do all the other standardized tests. Um, yeah, it's it, I, yeah, senior year's not... I'm always very gentle with our seniors. <laughs> if they yeah. come in looking a little ragged, I'm like, hey, man, how about... Well, and that's what's going on. And that's what you were saying. And that's what's really happened is it's fallen into place this time. You know, the uh, it's just naturally happened based on who these kids are and the tempering that they've gone through on the field, you know, since freshman year, having having seniors to fight against from the very beginning that Mm -hmm. were good, you know, their but their skill level is surpassing that heavily. You know, and sometimes I wonder of the wisdom of having us fight them, like especially the freshmen. I'm like, gosh, this is, you know, this is the, the there is no fair fight here. Like the 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 difference in experience, the difference in skill level is just staggering. And sometimes I I feel like I'm shooting fish in a barrel that has no water in it, and it, 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 it feels like it can always be discouraging to the new fighter. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to scare people away, but when I see results like biter, when I see <sighs> results like turtle. I'm like, oh, no kidding. You know, this this gauntlet method seems to work. It seems to produce really good fighters. And then you know, expanding upon that, when you think about Tethian, Alistair, Zulu, these are all graduates of my program. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, so I, I think our what we've got going on is really working. Definitely, and that's that's what I'm excited about. Is this 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 batch is going to be their they're really meta, you know, they've, they've seen since the beginning, they've, they've seen the effects not only of our fighting, but, uh, the seniors and what they've developed over mm-hmm. time, Sure. which is the, the, that beatable edge, you know, and we, or that like grinding edge, we definitely, you know, we don't take it. If you go too easy, it's about a balance. If you go yeah. too easy, then it's patronizing and yes. they're not into it. Right. You know, so you have to fight with them. That's mm-hmm. you have to. And they get it. And they and it's good because it helps them learn what we're gonna talk about later in this chapter about different calculations of fighters. Like right. learning about different situations, learning about, you know, not just a balanced field every time. Because that will mislead you into the future of warfare in right. that regard. Oh, absolutely. No, I, and, and yeah, that gives them a realistic mark, too. Again, we're not going in there going 110%. I'm not going as hard as I did in my Dark Angels oh. beaten or in my Warmaster exhibition. Like, yeah. I'm definitely not going that hard against my students. But Never. I don't want to make them feel like they're not getting a good fight out of me. Right. Uh, I want yeah. them to feel like when they win, they earned it. Um, because then it's an achievement. It's not just, oh, you know, Malark let me win again. Cool. Yep. It's, oh, I beat Malark. And they, that first time they beat Oni, or the first time they beat Malark, yep. they're just so stoked about it. And we're like, dude, you're, you're going to do it 100 more times before you graduate this program. But they're just that achievement because we don't go in and patronize. Like right. You said. And they, and yeah, not only do they earn it, like you said, and it's, they learn from it yeah. because then they're like, this is what I did right. I can see what I did right. I can see what worked and they can go from there. Yep. Yep. And so, yeah, I'm glad what we're doing is working. That's, that makes me feel real good. But <clears throat> we've kept you guys in suspense long enough. Sorry about the minor wheeze I've developed here. No, it's gone now. That's cool. Um, we're going to get into the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> <though>. <laughs> so this chapter was on deployment. 
Um, though when I was reading through it, I found remarkably little on what we might practically call deployment. Like hard and fast rules, I mean. Sun Tzu is really good for expressing the art of warfare. The book isn't called The Math of Warfare or The Science of Warfare. It's called The Art for a reason. There's supposed to be a, a, a measure of nuance. But I'm hoping that the purpose of this podcast is to break it down into a little bit more understandable segments for at least the purposes of wargaming. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about practical deployment a little bit later on, but right now I want to discuss what I thought was one of the, the chief themes of this chapter, which was invincibility. And this doesn't mean walking in and, and wearing illegal armor and five shields or using uh, illegal units or whatever the case may be. Uh, invincibility is, is a state of mind, it's a state of being, it's a state of approaching the battlefield. Um, any of you following along in the book, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. But one of the ways I interpreted this was uh, the Aristotle notion of the excellence being a matter of habit. Uh, it's not an achievement. It's not something that you just wake up one day and you are suddenly excellent. Excellence is an everyday practice. So if you're looking to be an excellent uh, swordsman, you should be practicing your swordsmanship every single day. If you're looking to be a really fast flanker, you should be practicing those sprint maneuvers every single day, taking dance classes, whatever the case may be to work on, on your form, your art. Uh, even very representative uh, facet of that is uh, a rough translation of Kung Fu, Gung Fu, wh- whichever, uh, is excellence mm-hmm. in itself, literally just... You know, and as you mentioned, oh, very nice. Sure, Ooh. I didn't think that would be audible. <laughs> <laughs> nice little kung fu ASMR for you there. That was <laughs> on a that neck note. pop, if you were wondering. Mm, a clean one. <laughs> but yeah, exactly as you're saying, excellence in itself, it's a practice. It's applied. Yeah, and, and so I think this, this notion of invincibility ties directly to that. If you are practicing your forms and thinking about your craft every single day... Uh, that that is your way of achieving invincibility. That's your way of going into the fight and fighting an enemy who is already beaten. And that's that's the other big point that he he's making here. Uh, and and it's not it, that that doesn't mean that you're going in and you're fighting an enemy that you've poisoned. I mean, I, I guess it could in a classical <laughs> sense if you poison the well and they're like you know really sick from it. Um, Truly, but in this case, it means you're coming into it. And like we discussed last episode. Um, the knowledge factor. There's an absolute, knowing when to fight and when not to fight, knowing how to use big numbers and small numbers, uh, that ties in directly right here. And so you know if, if you already know your enemy and you already know yourself, your enemy's already been beaten. Truly. And, and I think the, the, the aim of every single fight, whether it's a one-on-one duel between two swords masters, uh, a field skirmish between two realms, or a Warhammer 40k battle between two armies... Uh, the idea is to come into it and already have them beaten in your mind. And, but the other part of that is practice. It's yep. knowledge and practice because practice helps you know what actually works. When I first started playing AdMech, there were all sorts of things that I wanted to work. They didn't, <laughs> but I really wanted them to. Mm. You know, When I first started uh, doing Belagarth, guess what my first weapon was? The first thing I, I tried to, to make work for me. Hammer. A red two-sided axe. 
I was flattening everybody all the time. That was a big paddle. That's just, yeah. <laughs> that's just a big paddle. And But I was convinced. I was convinced I could make it work. I didn't have the knowledge to make it work. I didn't have the practice to make it work. But I was convinced I could. And I lost just about every single time. Definitely. It was like the first six years of my career. But you served <laughs> a lot of pizzas with it. I did. I did. Uh, fresh out of the oven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, flatbread. What about you? How do you fight an enemy who is already beaten? What, what, how do you come into a fight that way? Oh, um, and see, and that I guess that would be an example of like the self-needing you know, discipline in order to fix that equation. And so what I, what I have learned is what I have the most attention that, excuse my, excuse, man, <laughs> excuse my French. Uh, what I've found to be the important thing for me to focus on is not misjudging my enemy, mm. not underestimating or, uh, discounting what they could do. Uh, a, a lot of my tactics are mentally driven. Mm-hmm. And so if I misjudge a new fighter, you know, and I just think, well, they'll just buckle under this and they don't, I've lost. So, and same with a expert fighter when I'm like, I know them, I know what they do when I come at them with this and I don't expect them to potentially try something else or sure. to, you know, break the barrier, break the box in that regard, I've also lost. So I've taught myself very, very, you know, strongly over time that it is always important to never misjudge your enemy. Because noob foo is a real thing. It's very real, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been killed by noob foo all the time, especially when I'm being cocky yep. and, and think that I'm better than. Um, one of the worst mistakes I've ever made was going down to California the second time for Battle for the Ring. Because the first Battle for the Ring I went to, most of the California realms were really new. And we here in Stygian, we're, I'm sorry, California, for dissing you here a little bit here, but we called it Dynasty Warriors. Dynasty Warriors. And if indeed. anybody's ever played Dynasty <laughs> Warriors, you know what we're talking about. It feels like you're killing 100 people with a single sword stroke. Like they, they were all new down there, and they were still learning the trade. And then all the rough-and-tumble fighters from up in the Northeast would come down. You know, you had your God Squad, your Gelf, your Urukai. It was it was rough. And then the next one I went to, California had gotten meta. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was a totally different field. It was all speed bats and small angular shields and really fast movement and really excellent footwork. And I had to I had to up my game. My first several fights on that field, I was expecting Dynasty Warriors, and I must have looked like the biggest noob in the world. I got pwned so hard. Uh, just because I went in there cocky. I went in there expecting to win, and I didn't. And and probably one of the big reasons I didn't is because I underestimated my, my my opponent. Yeah. So I 100% feel you. Uh, we ought, we sometimes have students come in, not not often, but sometimes we do who have a martial arts background or yeah. a fencing background. In, oh. in the case of Sultan or something yes. like that, mm-hmm. and so you're sitting there and you're just getting lit up by this quote unquote kid, who in your mind you should be able to take no problem. That's dangerous. It's a dangerous place to be. I, I tell people the best way to do it is to step on the field and not see friends or enemies, not to see vets or noobs, but when you're considering your opponent, they are a target Truly. and a target alone. Truly. And that that definitely ties into our, the 
third section we have planned here. Literally. Absolutely, yeah. We'll talk about it in the future. But calculation is important. You know, proper calculation and judgment is very important. If you let yourself be blinded, it's no good. You're not going to do the math right. Any fighter with a weapon is a threat. Truly. Anyone. Uh, even though later we're going to talk about strong versus weak fighters, that's not a value assessment. It's, it's a numeric assessment. But any fighter with a, a weapon is a threat. Um, but before we move on to the kind of the meat and potatoes of this, talking about um, this kind of escalating uh, knowledge and processing that Sun Tzu speaks of, um, we want to talk a bit about moral compass and, and regulation. You might remember that from, mm. I believe it was the, let me find it here real quick. Um, it was the first chapter. I believe so. Yeah, it was the first chapter here. Um, where we were talking about planning, and, and moral compass is, in terms of uh, a real army, the actual leader, the, the units, the tactics, um, the uh, who they are, or do, do their, their values align with the army, but more importantly, do they know what to do? Do they have an actual understanding of what should be done in the situation? And then regulation is the army's ability to carry out their will. Do they have the training and the discipline and the organization to do what the commander foresees because in an actual battle there isn't a six by four table that you're playing on or a field with set edges of the world it's everything you there's no holds barred so that is how nor that's why sun tzu doesn't provide a solid framework here i think is because normally it's supposed to be a commander reacting to the situation he's seeing and the army obeying the commander a hundred percent and I mean, as you did earlier, I'll jump in with uh, a personal correction as well. Oh, sure. In the same episode, we were talking about uh, the different aspects of waging war and what involves them and uh, or what affects them, mm -hmm. such as Earth, you know, for the battlefield and uh, Heaven as well for the uncontrollable uh, factors such as weather and, you know, just everything in between there and I uh, actually started referring to this as uh, this cross line the uh, moral compass oh. because they are tied in my mind so heavily and uh, this is a, such a huge thing for driving you know uh, regulation as well they're tied because how do you get your units to follow perfectly? How, you know, what drives them to do that? What, because you're a good boss or because they're defending their city or because they're defending an ideal, mm -hmm. you know, and these are all uncontrollable factors that are, that are, are either already, that are either placed before them <laughs> in their lifetimes or have been instilled from before then. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And that's, so that's, you know, that's my bad for connecting them, but I feel like, uh, you know, in definition, but I feel like in reality they're very tied in that manner to the point where a force could think that a rainstorm is tied to their moral compass, is is tied to... Well, that, you bring up an interesting point because in this time period, um, when this was written, um, the mandate of heaven was something that was very much believed in by China. And the mandate of heaven meant that if a ruler was just and fair 
and wise and deserve to rule, then the rains would come, the crops would grow, the people would be plentiful, everybody would prosper, it was going to be a good time for the country. But if everything was not so good with the ruler, then the rains would not come, there would be natural disasters and famine and plague, and people would eventually rise up because the ruler had lost the mandate of heaven. So, like you said, <clears throat> weather was in, in implicitly tied to people's judgment. Uh, a lot of times before a battle, they would look at a, um, oh, it's not, Tai Chi's the martial art. What's the, mm. the sticks, the, there's a, there's a, it's like the oh. Chinese tarot. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. I Ching. Mm, mm. I Ching. Um, that was a very common uh, divination for them to consult before doing, even doing a campaign to know what would, what would happen before that, what, if there was going to be good luck or bad luck. So th- I don't think you're completely off uh, linking these two concepts because, again, they, I think they're kind of fluid almost. Definitely. Even for better or worse in that regard. Sure. You know, I'm sure it drove some very bad decisions as well. Which is why naturally, you know, people try to root moral compass in, in different things over time. Well, I mean, even even now, when when I was serving, when we'd be doing drills, um, it I know that my lieutenant didn't control the weather. I'm fully aware that whether or not my lieutenant is a good person or a bad person, that doesn't matter whether or not it snows on drill. If it snows on drill, I'm still going to hate lieutenant a little bit for <laughs> making me be out there in that weather, you know? Truly. Um so it does. It does have a moral factor to it, no doubt. Um, but yeah, they are different concepts, at least in the way Sun Tzu uh, uh, defines them l- loosely here. Truly. Um, Though connectable, yes. they're not one and the same. I can dig that. My bad. You're okay. <laughs> <laughs> if, if our listeners are forgiving of my mess-ups, I'm sure they'll be forgiving of yours as well. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> so uh, the, th- the five concepts that Sun Tzu says are linked in this particular chapter... Uh, are scoping, measurement, calculation, balancing, and victory. And he says that those go in that ascending order, that scoping, use scoping to do your measurements. You do your, use your measurements to use, do your calculation. You use your calculations to do your balancing. And then you use that balancing to achieve victory. It seems pretty easy, but uh, he also doesn't necessarily define clearly what those things mean. So I, I, I want to kind of talk maybe about what we think those definitions are, mm. and how those play into Bell and into 40K. Truly, yeah. So, let's start with the beginning, with scoping. I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. You're surveying the location uh, and the enemy disposition. Very, honestly, in my mind, one of the most important and easily skipped steps. True. Especially on the Bell field. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I, I, when I take to the bell field, uh, more often than not, I see people jawjacking with their friends or in, uh, in, in some other way not necessarily paying attention to what's going on. But like you said, looking at, at, across the field at what your opponent is doing, where they're setting up, who is on the other team, that's very important. That, that, that information can make or break the battle right there. Crucial. Absolutely. So scoping, uh, the other things in Bell that I think uh, would, would kind of fall under this would be uh, a periphery knowledge of units and realms. How do they fight? For instance, if you know something about Numenor, you're going to know a little bit more about their fighting style, as opposed to somebody from Stygia, as opposed to somebody from Wrath or Ebonhold or, or whatever the case may be. 
Um, so the knowledge of that is going to be crucial. The other thing is that a lot of units get a little typecast or they, they, they recruit people of similar levels or similar uh, ways of fighting. Um, it's only natural. It's only natural. Uh, for instance, we've talked about how the Dark Angels seem to go on a, or on a level. There, there mm. seems to be a, a um, you have to operate in a certain way to be considered to be a Dark Angel in the first place. It's not like they train you in how to be a Dark Angel. You are, you aren't. Yeah, 100%. And I think for a lot of units, it's kind of that same way. Um, and so knowing what that style is tells you a lot about the people lining up across the field from you. And then just the general tactics that that have been kind of being used recently. What was used last battle? What was used the battle before that? Those things all influence, especially if you're dealing with a large unit battle type situation. Knowing which unit attacked which unit the last battle, that's huge information. Big time. Likely to be some vengeance. And sometimes difficult to track and keep aware of. And that's why practice in this excellence and all these things will ensure proper calculation right well, ensure that you're getting all of that information and if you're lined up with your cohorts in such a manner it's really going to induce proper situation sure. the proper calculation of what's going on absolutely absolutely and again so it's kind of like a if you are looking at this as the math equation if you screw up something in the very beginning with the very first calculation which in this case is scoping um, the rest of the equation is not going to go well for you. Everything's going to be off. Uh, so it's some other things that are really crucial to, to this field awareness. This whole thing is just pre-field awareness. We often talk about field awareness as this thing that only happens in the moment of the fight, when the mm-hmm. blows are flying, when everybody is actually fighting. As a purely reactive force. Right. But that's not, not, that's not well, that's a half idea. Yeah, It's a half idea of what field awareness is. Field awareness is being aware of where everybody is on the field at all times. That's even before the fight, which is what we're talking about here. And so I, that, I don't think I specified that earlier. What we're talking about in this chapter, deployment, is that period between when people are called to the field and when Leon is called. In that period, well, for uh, 40K, it's actually just called deployment. So that one's, <laughs> that one's pretty easy. Um, Instant transcription. <clears throat> but then uh, the last thing I think, at least f- uh, from what I understand of scoping, um, and this is another one of those kind of meta ideas, is what is the current political situation? Who, are, who is the leadership on the field? Those fireside chats that are often had between units or unit leaders or between individuals, those relationship changes, whether or not people start dating or stop dating, these things can have a really crucial impact on what occurs on the field. Super viable. I've seen a unit attack another unit, an entire unit battle sequence, because there had been a breakup. And it was, it was this, one person was always instigating, the, yes, the, the rest of the unit would follow. And so it was one of these very predictable things after a while. And if you know your history, uh, that's not the first time this has happened in any way. That's an old story. Exactly. (laughs) So knowing that and looking out for those things can be very crucial. Yep. So, yeah, and and so that's all a part of the Bell scoping. It's not just knowing who's on the field, but it's knowing who is connected to who on the field. Where are those those subtle influences? Where are those allegiances that may not be worn as a belt flag? 
these things can be important. Later, uh, Sun Tzu will do a chapter on spies, and I'm going to very happily uh, <laughs> yammer about that chapter on spies. But for now, we're talking about scoping, and we're talking about 40K. So it's kind of the same idea, the knowledge of armies. So if you're coming to the field and you've got a Marines army, and I'm coming to the field and I've got an Eldar army, if I know a lot of things about Eldar, but I don't really know a whole lot about Marines, I'm not going to be doing that well. This goes back to what we were talking about in previous chapters of knowing your enemy and knowing yourself. But if I know a lot about Eldar, and I know a lot about Marines, and I know how they fight each other, the general patterns and everything that they take in doing so, that's going to give me a huge leg up in the coming fight. Oh, it's it's crucial, and it takes you, really, it takes you into the excellence when you know what you're facing, when you know every army, what mods they can have. People don't ask those questions sometimes, nope. and it's not it's not good to just blindly go for it and be like, cool, well, I've, this is a, looks like a shooty army to me. Right. You know, what an assumption to make when, especially when the information is there. Yeah. Well, and, and you don't necessarily even have to go through and read other people's codexes to get that information. I do. Um, but you don't have to, uh, for instance, I'm a part of a gaming club. We call ourselves the black Lotus sector. Um, and just about everybody in the club plays a different army. A lot of us have Imperium armies, but we also have either a Xenos or a uh, chaos force as well and so we actually have a really good representation of the general 40k field and so we're able to get a really diverse play set it's not just you know marines on marines all the time because that's all everybody's playing so that that that, that gives a huge leg up when i've gone to the local tournaments here i haven't had the pleasure of going to an itc tournament yet but when i've gone to the local tournaments here that pre-knowledge of other people's armies has given me a huge leg up especially since i normally use admech and Admech, to my knowledge, is not that big of a, or, or, or widely played of an army. Um, so it gives me a, a huge leg up, knowing my opponent and having them not know me. And that's a, a part of this uh, the scoping idea. Um, and then just like Kony was saying, uh, the general abilities and tactics. You know, what can Eldar do? What can't Eldar do? What are Space Marines good at? Where are their limitations? Um, what tactics do they generally use? What tactics work best? This is best learned by playing a lot of separate armies. I've got seven armies. I'm not. I'm not trying to brag. I'm not trying to show my size or anything. <laughs> but I, I, I play seven armies, not for the fact of just having seven armies, but because that diversity, being able to transfer between Death Guard to Zenich Demons to Dark Angels to Admech to Imperial Guard to Imperial Knights, like just having all of this at my fingertips. And orcs. I even forgot to mention the orcs. They're the <laughs> wild ones of the bunch. All of the green skins. This is all the angles. These are all the things I feel like I need to know about 40k. So not only do I get to practice against them in my club, but I get to practice with them and know their weaknesses. So suddenly the orcs don't look so scary to me anymore. I had hardly ever gone up against the orcs. They were, uh, they were actually one of the blank spots in my knowledge because they just weren't that common for me. And then I started playing orcs and I was like, oh, this is where they're weak. Because I started playing them that way. So um, that's, that's one way also of getting a, a general knowledge of their abilities and their tactics. Not to backtrack, but you just brought up something very, very real. And I think it's worth mentioning. That is absolutely a super, super strong tactic. Playing as your enemy, playing as something that you know, don't normally do is a totally different viewing style for looking for holes. Right. I 
I pick, I did not, I'm not a single blue user, so I have no reason to pick up a shield, especially in my mind. Sure. But one of the best ways that I learned to fight in against an aggressive uh, forward charging shieldman was to pick up a shield for a while and throw some edge around. Practice being an aggressive forward charging shieldman. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and it works for Bell. It works for 40K. The best way to know your enemy is to become your enemy. Uh, what was it? Nietzsche? I'm going to misquote somebody again. That's just going to be my <laughs> thing on this show. Uh, said, uh, if you stare into the void, be careful it doesn't stare back into you. Correct. Um, and so it's kind of the same thing here. But in this case, the void staring is good. You should absolutely go toward the void because the void is learning in this particular case. <laughs> <laughs> and quite a void it is. It never ends. So, uh, speaking of a void, um, the last thing in, that I have to say about scoping for 40k is that void that you may not be able to fill, which is the knowledge of your opponent's experience at what they're doing. Uh, somebody who knows how to use the orcs is going to do better than somebody who is fresh to the orcs and just kind of figuring them out. That's just, uh, they just know what to do. They know how to find themselves in the mathematically superior situations. You don't necessarily always know that. Uh, when you're going to an ITC tournament, you're not always going to know the person across the table from you. Uh, you will know a name like Nick Nanavati, but you may not know a name like Nicholas Bruyard. Uh, those are those are very different names and very different skill levels uh, and different recognitions. So your opponent's experience may not be something you immediately know. I might recommend having a nice friendly chat before you get going. And, and, and frame these things as friendly questions, not as an interrogation, but it's absolutely interrogation. Like, okay, hey, is this your first tournament? You know? Oh, yeah, this is my first tournament. Boom, you now know that they're a noob. Or, oh, no, I do this all the time. Oh, crap, I'm going against a vet. Like, you know, you can absolutely know things. Or, is this your first time playing this army? Or, or they look really good. Did you just paint these guys? No, no, I've had these for a while. I've been playing these guys for a while. Little leading questions that can get you information as to your opponent's skill level, whether or not they just have a really fly-looking army, or if they've been doing this for a long time. Or you get the red flag answer, which is, oh, I, I, I play, you know. Oh, no. I mess around. Oh, God, yeah, they're then, then they're already <laughs> on the level. You know you're, <laughs> you've got game to play. It's like looking across the table at a poker player who also plays poker. <laughs> and you're like, I'm getting nothing out of you. You're playing the game too. Good for you, bud. Give me a, give me a facial expression. Any facial expression. <laughs> so, scoping. The first part of deployment is just knowing. And that's your scope. After you know, then comes measurement. And in terms of definition, measurement is exactly what it sounds like. These are your hard numbers, uh, team sizes, the distance between teams, the damage potential of both sides, the things that can be measured in terms of ratios and distances. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And this might be one of the most... This is another place where this is won or lost. Every single one of these sections is one where a battle can be won or lost. But here, uh, mismeasuring can lead to absolute disaster. Um, so in terms of, of Belagarth, like we said before, just team sizes. Uh, a, a larger team has an advantage over a smaller team just in terms of the number of swords flying through the air. Um, yeah, big time. It's easy to misjudge, uh, I'd say, uh, just because it's... <sighs> well, it's not always hard and fast, is it? Like, I mean, like, just because the other team has larger numbers doesn't mean they're going to win. It's just 
part of the part of the measurements that you take. Truly, and I guess what I'm looking for is I'm not trying to get into a skill level yet. As I'm trying to look more at these aren't skills you that everyone just has. Nope. Looking at the line and judging perspective wise, how many fighters are over there, and are they layered? Is it a is it a big front line or are they pocketed or grouped? Right. And some people are really good at spotting that kind of thing quickly without needing to like, oh, what's his looks right. like uh, you know <laughs> they can just look and be like, that's that looks like a solid, you know, forty five man group and quickly assess the what's going on within right. that group. Well, it's something that can be practiced. I don't think everybody can do it right off the bat. I don't think this is necessarily a skill that everybody starts with, much like swinging a sword, right? But if if you're thinking about it, if it's something that you're stepping up and consciously trying to do in some way, you will get better at it. Which enforces the theme of all of this, as you've said, which is excellence. Yep. Practice. Practice, Practice and of excellence. <laughs> they, they are excellence. Practice and habit are excellence. At least mm. Aristotle had a lot of weird theories on things. I don't like particularly what he had to say about women, but his his ideas on excellence I, I, I rather agree with. Um, but in that same idea of, of the numbers, are those numbers quality? So now we're talking damage potential. This goes back to knowing your enemy. How do you know who has the damage potential? Well, hopefully you've been watching and you know who's who on that field, and you know where your uh, turkey feathers and your Rubens and your Hakans are, and you're going to keep an eye on where those sections are because those are your high damage potential sections. That's a measurement. Yeah, 100, 100%. And it ties exactly into the previous, which is proper judgment, proper, you know, quick, who's, or long if it's required, Who's who's go who's over there? What have they been doing? Right. What are they gonna bring? What do I you know, what what's really going on over there? And gear choice is another huge thing. If you look across the field and you see me over there rocking two swords, that's that's my primary style. That's probably my best style. Uh, Florentine is my favorite, and and it's gonna be a harder fight for somebody coming against me. You look across the field and you see me with a spear. Mm. That that my damage potential just went down considerably. So even just gear choice, you're not just talking about the fighter themselves, but gear choice and that gear concentration. Are they shield heavy? Are they single blue heavy? Are they polearm heavy? Are they archer heavy? God forbid. Uh. You know, they're, they're, there's a there's a lot of these numbers that can balance as well. You know, I hate Very going much. against a red heavy side. Yeah, it's. Fun it's- be on, on side, <laughs> yes <laughs> yes tell me more <laughs> oh, you know all about it yeah oh but yeah uh, and, and so those the, the gear choice and and again the distribution of that gear is also a measurement to be considerate of um the terrain and battlefield size just the general uh, information that can be gleaned there because there's small fighting fields our, our our fighting field at bonner park isn't that big, all no. things considered. I mean, it's big no. enough for us. Yeah. But it's not all that big. And sometimes I went to the, the fields out east and was like, you're telling me this entire hillside? Speaking particularly of Ragnarok. Mm. Um, I'm sitting there being like, you're telling me this entire forested hillside is a battlefield. Where's the edge of the world? Oh, it's over there somewhere. 
What? Right. <laughs> like, it, like you literally, literally couldn't even, bo- you don't even bother trying to see the other side because it was all the way over there. It was a huge field. So those are things to consider as well. Certain units, certain people are going to do better on small fields as they are on large fields. Forested fields as opposed to fields that are wide open. These are measurements, hard measurements to be taken into account. Because if you've got a shield wall and your your unit likes to fight as a shield wall, forests are not your friend. No. Because that's going to be breaking up the, the continuity of your shield wall constantly. You're going to be having to maneuver in ways that, and, and other people can use those trees against you in a forest that's less effective in a large open or a bridge situation. 100%. Yeah, and knowing and being able to quickly assess that and apply those measurements will help you in victory. Absolutely. So again, trade battlefield size, absolutely crucial. Um, the spacing between people uh, also ties back to the, the team size, but um, if you've got large spaces between people, they're harder to flank. That should be taken into consideration. If they're super cl- close together, easily encircled. Measurements. Um, the last thing I have here is the game type and objective positioning. So if you're Mm. doing a ring the bell, you're going to play that a lot more different than you're going to do with a a stand and deliver or with a capture the flag. Big time. And that really will affect the measurement of your player type too. Right. You're playing a ring the bell. That's instantly going to change the value of a lot of fighters. Sure. And diminish the value of a lot of fighters as well. Yep. Uh, As long as they're not playing the role they should be. Yeah. If your defenders are playing right and your offenders are playing correctly, then, you know, fine, that's optimal. That's what it should be. Sure. But definitely changes things, and if you don't take that into account, you're going to be measuring things way off. No, and and then that's a a crucial part. Uh, And so these measurements, like we were talking about, in Belagarth, I don't think a lot of people necessarily bother to make them, but I do think... That they're crucial. Definitely overlooked, especially in the purpose of framing. It's so easy to look at a side and have your attention totally drawn to key figures and not properly look at who's around them and what's going on with the numbers. It's so it's so easy to mismeasure with those things. It's all perspective. And you're talking about units earlier and grouping. Mm -hmm. You can just tell by how people are standing next to each other and how they're facing each other, which is a similar measurement type thing. People don't look at that. It's too, it's just, it's one of those things that really defines excellence is what are you looking at as a factor? What is a telling sign to you? Sure. You know, what they're holding or who's holding what where. Like you say, it's not necessarily the weapon. It's, it's who's holding it and where they are at the time. Definitely. So, measurement in Belagarth. Um, now we move on to measurement in 40K. It's a lot similar to that in Belagarth because you're dealing with a fixed edge. Um, four by six in most cases. So you're looking at similar ideas, which is like damage potential. Gear choice also plays into that. But where it starts to differ are things like keywords. So if they've all got the fly keyword, mobility is their strong suit. 
It's good to know that because that that is going to affect how you should be bubbling. That's going to affect how you are going to be moving because they don't have to obey necessarily the same rules you do unless you have a keyword heavy or fly army as well. Um, Psyker, another important keyword to pay attention to. Those guys deal out free mortal wounds. That's rough. That is rough to deal with um, unless you're a Psyker heavy army as well. I'm, t- I'm trying to think of other keywords that are important to pay. Uh, vehicle, vehicle or monster. Um, I like to run vehicle and monster heavy lists because I find that that keyword is extremely effective. They often have higher toughness, higher damage dealing potential. So even just generally knowing what keywords are across from you and, and how that affects the game rules can really be a factor as well. Um, in that same idea, what characters are over there and what abilities do they have? What abilities do they confer to the to the people around them or to the units who are around them. Um, and, and speaking of this, the bubbles, this bubble effect, you may have heard other people speak about this. It's a, it's an idea that it's a little bit in, in bell, but really strong in 40 K. I know I've talked about it before cause I'm an ad player and we have to bubble. The idea <laughs> is using units that are less effective to your overall strategy. So as an ad player, I'm trying to blow you off the board. Every single game, I'm trying to use my big guns to blow you off the board. How do I best accomplish that? I blow you off the board while keeping my big guns alive. So the bubble is intended to do just that. I put Skitari and and other units out around my forces at such measurements that people cannot easily get to my prize. I don't really care about those Skitari. I don't care if they die. If they survive, they can be objective holders, woohoo. But their purpose is to form into this bubble and be a part of this this overall faction um, strategy that I'm going for. Um, but yeah, this is all obviously happening in the deployment phase. Uh, sometimes you're going to be deploying all of your army at once. Sometimes you're going to be uh, going off back and forth with your opponent. And it, it again, depends on what you're trying to do. And that'll all, all play into what we're talking about next, which is uh, calculation. Oni, did you have anything to add to the... The 40k measurements, or it's basically it's really similar to that. Yeah, but you were you were catching up that I had a thought on this. It's and it's and it applies not only to that but into uh, fighting as well. Uh, measurement of your units, you know, you add in unit knowledge and uh, excuse me, uh, measure. Yeah. Oh, that's a good cut. Anyways, <laughs> you take in unit knowledge and measurement uh, into it. Those You need to watch how far your enemy can move. You need to, and that is important in deployment, knowing because you're going to have to make counter movements. Oh, yeah. You know your your bubble size. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, for your strategy, your bubbles, bubble size and how you place it out is totally going to depend on how much movement your enemy's going to roll. Yep. After breaking through that bubble, after breaking that melee, how safe do you need to be? You got flying, your bubble is going to be crazy different yep. as compared to if you have a bunch of landlocked melee fighters. Absolutely. No, if, if I'm going against a bunch of landlocked melee fighters, I'm going to be forward deploying my bubble a lot more because I don't have to worry about them flying around it. So the longer I can keep my enemy at range, the better chance I have of, of doing exactly what my army is designed to do, which is killing them at range. Um, if I've got if there's flyers on the board, that bubble comes a lot closer because I don't want those flyers anywhere near me, and they don't have to worry about terrain. They don't have to worry about... Um, 
my units necessarily. And, and so I, I try to, I actually go through and, and, and go as far as to measure my opponent's bases and make my, uh, the spaces between my units no larger than that. Ex- exactly. Yeah. And that's what I was, and that's what I was thinking about, especially, especially when you have such a potential disadvantage in a situation like that. Oh, because if they get in and they disable my big guns, they don't have to kill my big guns. They just have to get close to them. Yep. And my strategy fails. Which is why it's so important to do this now. Yep. And not, and not to rely on doing it reactively once battle has started. Because the whole point is you're preparing for that to happen. So you're maximizing your effectiveness of when you make that movement. You know how far they're going to be able to extend, and you're ready to move back instead of just being like, well, I'll pull back when I need to. Because at that point, the Eldar Flyers are already behind you. Yep, it's, <laughs> it's over. So in this way, scoping becomes measurement. From there, measurement becomes calculation. And this is a lot like what it sounds. Uh, It's using those measurements to devise a strategy, something that's going to work. Like I said, if I'm looking across and my measurements conclude that I've got a flyer heavy army, my calculation is going to be that I need to pull my dudes in close to minimize how close those flyers can get, as opposed to other situations when I might make other calculations. Absolutely. Yeah, that is just super reflective. That is... This is when the culmination of all these are super uh, relevant. They're super apparent, I should say, both of them. Uh, you got a line of reds over there. That's that's it. You need to deal with that. You need to get support weapons over there. You need to get other spears or reds. You need to get archers. You need to to take care of that. And if you're not properly measuring, that's where that's then you're trying to do it in the middle of the fight. Right. Then you're dealing with taking red damage, not being prepared to counter that. Exactly. And, and if you're not measuring who's over there with the red, right. there's a whole different ballgame as it is. That's mm-hmm. why all of these factors are so important. And the other, But to make those calculations, in Bell, it's usually either one person <clears throat> or there's not necessarily... Uh, a bespoke plan to speak of. So the the difference being, the one strategy we'll call driving the bus, and the other one is a set strategy. So first, a set strategy, I like to talk about my, my unit, the Dark Angels, a lot, but I feel like a lot of times we have a set strategy. We do the same thing every time, which is always different depending on the situation, but it's in the way we... <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> okay. A knife, a knife cuts all the same, but it's in a chef's hand. It's it's how he uses the knife. Right, right. And so it's it's a matter of reading one another. It's a matter of knowing what the other person's going to do before they do it, and planning your move based on that. It's 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 kind of what makes the Dark Angels click, and that's that's the set strategy. Just about every time we do, occasionally huddle up and say, hey, okay, that red over there has been causing some serious issues, let's give him some special attention, or, you know, that shieldman, you know, she has been really rocking it, we need to take her down. Uh, every now and then, we will we'll come together and make a plan. But for the most part, it's a set strategy. Driving the bus is something that I have seen more heavily in units uh, like the Urukai or the Gelf, two units I've worked with who do heavily driving the bus. And in this case, they designate one quote-unquote bus driver. Uh, this person makes the calls. They say, "We're going left. We're going right. Go straight at them." You know, they, it's a very—it's usually a very simple uh, 
call and repeat back and forth, but it's effective uh, because it gets the army moving in one direction. Everybody's got the same intention as, as we've discussed before, that unity of purpose is huge. If you've got an army spread out all over the place fighting people in all these different places, it's not going to be nearly as effective as an army that knows where it's going, knows what it's doing, and knows what it's going to do after when it, when it's, when it moves on. Oh, uh, absolutely. <clears throat> and even even here, the moral compass theory is applied to these units. Yep. Definitely. Whether on either end, you know, whether you're all individually or grouped, you know, in small pockets doing the same action or all united under one voice. Right. And something I actually just thought of here, a consideration, uh, to, to be sure, whether or not you're, the people you're working under are capable of mm. what you're, you're thinking of. Um, if you're working with a group of veterans, but a lot of these veterans are a little old, like, like myself, and perhaps might be mobility hindered, your highly mobile flanking plan might not be feasible mm. just because of what you're dealing with. So that, that's another part of the calculation that needs to be, can your team accomplish what you've set in motion, what you think you can do? Right. Do you have the measurement and <laughs> the calculations to properly perform the plan? Right. Right. And so in Bell, this is this is all either happening, like we said, by the, the bus driver happening very quickly, just calling to play or by having a set strategy in which you, you generally call things as they're happening because you already know what you're going to kind of do in every situation. So in 40K, obviously, there's just the one like the Neo, the one. Um, and, and that is the general of the army. That's you, the player who's commanding. Um, and so you're making all these decisions. You're the one who's going to have to make these calculations and use your measurement and your scoping to win somehow. And, and you do this by using your army to its fullest advantage, like we talked about before. If you're playing a melee-based army, everything you're doing should be about getting stuck in. Everything. Like, getting into melee combat is what your army is designed to do. So every, every movement you make should be with that as your ultimate goal. If you're playing a shooting army, you should be playing your, your army in a different way. You should be playing your army in such a way that the melee armies cannot get to you and that you're able to shoot at them at your leisure. And through your calculations, you're able to do this. That's why the other steps are so vital. Right, right, because calculation is where the other two just come together and you're, you're making these calls. Um, but obviously this is before anything is happening. So next, after the calculation, comes the balancing now, uh, James Pratt, or James Trapp, excuse me, um, has a footnote in here about this term, and he says that, the, that there isn't actually an English term or an English word for what he actually means. And the, the Chinese word more means going from a broad brush stroke to a, a narrow brush stroke. And so I'm, I like the word refining, balancing mm. or refining the strategy to kind of uh, expound upon that. Um, and, and this is adjustments to new data. So as, as the battlefield starts to change and as things are occurring, how are you adjusting to that new data? If you thought they were going to come on the left, but they come harder on the right, how are you adjusting to that? Where's your balancing to it? Some, sometimes it's a discussion between people. Like it can happen uh, but before or after a battle where you're discussing with people and saying, you know, this is the general strategy I've worked out. What do you think? Has this worked for you? You know, I have people ask me all the time, phalanx, does the phalanx work? And I say, no, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a very specific time period, 
where a very specific fighting style was prevalent in a very specific situation, it was great. Oh, sure. Sure, if you're going against another phalanx, phalanxes were awesome. <laughs> if you're going against guerrilla fighters that will engage you at their leisure and don't have commanding officers behind them telling them they have to engage right now, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't work nearly as well. Right. Every time I see a trident bell, people are like, I'm not going to hit them in the front. I'm going to go uh, to the sides. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, uh, wait, wait a second. No. Wait, 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 wait. I swear I have a plan for this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't don't use a phalanx is the is the plan mm. generally. Um and, and sometimes further research can be done. Obviously in the heat of the battle, further research isn't an option, and sometimes discussion isn't either, but adjusting to new data absolutely uh is is crucial. So in Bellagarth, um this is done in, in terms of like line balancing. So if you're looking across the field and you notice after you've set up that you imbalance properly and they're going to punch through in a place uh, that you didn't want them to, uh, shuffle some fighters around to make sure that they at least have uh, a slog getting through there. Yep. Yeah, and that goes down from weapon type to skill of fighter. Oh, yeah. If, you know, even if you're like, well, I'm going to find a weak spot in the wall and, and punch through, you know, with a strong shieldman, it's... If you completely ignore the previous steps, you know, the measurement and the calculation, and you ignore there's, you know, X amount of pole arms or archers over here, and you're not, you're just like, well, it doesn't matter, I'm not over there, I don't have to deal with it, that might punch, even if they're newer fighters or if the unit type is going to destroy something and you're not thinking about it, right? you have a problem on your hands. You do. Uh, and, and like you were saying with the, with the unit type, uh, things can move around and shift. Like sometimes uh, a, a strong shield wall will start to the left, and then as the battle progresses, they're moving to the right. That means that whatever plan you guys had for, for dealing with that shield wall has now had to move over there. And if it's just a purely reactive thing, that can be really disruptive mm. sometimes to the overall um, morale. Huge, yeah, yeah. Especially if you know, you have a un and uh, for any reason unsteadied group, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it can happen for a lot of reasons. Key players going down, yeah. key weapons going down. Oh, uh, the worst. So in that same idea, callouts are are really important. So if if somebody's flanking and this wasn't expected and nobody else has seen it, or even if everybody else has seen it, calling out flanker on the left, flanker on the right, watch behind. These are crucial things to letting other people know that the battlefield is evolving. evolving. Your spear uh, wielder may not be aware that there's somebody coming up behind him. And if you do so make them aware... um, that that in- increases their chances of getting more kills for your team, which is the whole point. Yeah, and to match that proper response to said callouts, a uh, unified uh, decision on what to do, not having people be like, uh, 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 uh. That's uh, somebody else's problem. Yep. Yeah. Or stall and not know what to do, because we all know, like, that's just, that's just crippling for a unit. Even if there's a clear callout, uh, if you're if they're not practiced and ready to go, and that call out proper or not makes them stop and have to think about how they should be reacting, 
you're already losing out. You're already defeating the purpose. Right, even just as simple as saying heads up or, or um, arrow. Just saying mm-hmm. the word arrow, even if it hasn't been fired yet, but just making people aware that an archer has drawn back um, will often dissuade an archer from taking a shot. If enough people Big are like, time. whoa, and like react to it, suddenly the archer has completely lost their chance. It's like uh, a herd of deer becoming aware of a cougar, and one of them popping the flag up their, their little tail, and then everybody else is aware, and nobody gets eaten by a cougar. It's pretty nice. Yeah. Make call-outs for your team. Call-outs save lives. But that leads into the rapid readjustments, like you were talking about. If Once the call-outs are made, you have to react to it. It's not enough to say there's somebody coming up on the left. you got to do something about it. You're going to reposition in such a way that the left is now the front, or send some people to the left to deal with them. Which, this is a very... Uh, this is, I think, when people have problems, if you have problems doing this, look to the other steps, yeah. because... This is the most, these, the later on you get, the farther and farther off and askewed the rest of these, the calculation becomes, because your base numbers are wrong. Every, you know, it's exponential. This is knowing exactly what to do when the math is there is what's important. Right. Because that will make, that will make the end result right. You know, knowing at that point, if you've made your calculations right, and this, the change-up happens, and you need a rapid response, you're going to make a better judgment. You're not going to miss... It's already... If you're already in a good spot, that's the whole point of this. If you start in a solid spot, you have you build a strong foundation for yourself, and you create that invincibility that we're looking for. You're ready to go. And this is obviously easier when you're dealing with unit battles or realm battles, where you have some control over the fighters who are around you. Truly. Um, when, you're, when you're just on a mixed field, and it's just two sides of fighters who don't necessarily know each other, the rules are a little bit different, but making yourself aware of these things will make you more effective on your team. And if everybody kind of is aware of these things, then everybody can be reactive in the same way. Exactly. You don't necessarily have to have practiced with each other to know that certain things need to be done. Again, somebody calls out somebody on the left... You, somebody needs to go check that out. Somebody says, Arrow, find a shield to get your head behind real quick, you know? Yeah, <coughs> which definitely can, if you get good at these, that can lead to a deep meta with making your opponent do things. Right. You know, especially if they're if you're dealing with a certain type of realm where the fighters do a certain type of thing and you can read that and you're like, oh, look, look how they react to, you know, they want to counter push archers they counter push archers right and then you're like okay let's get aggressive with it show a a heavy intent to drop archers on them Mm -hmm. and pull them in and trap them and so that's why this that's why these can be so valuable if really mastered well and, and one of the nice things about again being in charge of armies and soldiers who don't actually die is that we can be a part of this ever-changing meta. Mm. That that knowing where things are going and what's been done, we can make decisions uh, based on being ahead of that curve, ahead of that wave. Oh, that's so real in so many ways. Definitely, there's definitely surfer-type fighters on the wave of the fight for sure. Well, sure. Like you were saying that, like five or six years ago, the the, the fisherman flail 
mm. was really popular. Very, super heavily popular. Yeah, and uh, it was, you know, it was effective. People just, it's about a static check, a static skill check. You throw this huge, what, Scorpion huge max, map. yeah, max length weapon, basically, just under, just enough for head and chain to be under max length. And so, they, for those of you who may not know, that's a 42-inch flail. It's ridiculous. And, uh, yeah, it's just a static shock. And, and a lot of times, the cores they use are super light, and they're pretty flexible. They, they'll max out uh, accepted flex, and uh, they just statically throw these shots from max range and just throw over shieldmen, just absolutely destroys... Uh, mid-level shieldmen they can't they can't they can handle a block or two yeah but it's not about that it's about it's always going to be a deep wrap on your shoulder every shot over and over and over and over again but they were strong that was the meta yeah for a while and and that's the thing and then you look at you know overall the game and different units moral compass you know, and people start being like, hey, that's, yeah, fisherman flail because you're just fishing for shots. And people are like, oh, yeah, that's very true. And, you know, then you're like, oh, what a low-skill weapon. You know, you're high-skill fighter. Why are you using that? And people are like, you know, it's, if it's not true, they, they won't care. But if there is some truth to it, it reflects. Right. And it definitely did. Like, at, there was this huge peak for a while where there's just fisherman's flails everywhere. People joking about bringing garbage pails of fisherman flails out <laughs> for their units like and it really reflected just you just universally without even it happening without people like deciding not to it just happened people started moving away from that and weapons and counters heavy reds heavy strong uh, support weapons started shutting it down so then not only was there a moral compass reason to stop and change it. There was also an active calculation and reactive adjustment that needed to be made that ended up happening. Well, and gear changes were happening too. Like I, I think it was around that time that there's a, a now very popular way of building shields that the uh, the top side is angled. Mm, that yep. it gets larger as it goes away from the chin and out away toward the shoulder, so it provides a lot more shoulder and back protection. I saw a lot more of those pop up, and the again, rhombus. there goes the there goes the fisherman flail. All of a sudden, your your pinpoint style, like where you have shoulder shots, is not effective. You know, and what and I mean, it seems like oh, we'll just shoot the other side. All of a sudden, your arm and. <laughs> 40 plus inch dumb <laughs> flexi weapon is <laughs> is reaching across your shield it's like you're just like laying the salami of your arm on your shield to just be chopped off all nice and clean it's it doesn't work well for the style it's no. it's a hard counter now there are some people who make it look like an art form i met uh, a, <sighs> a guy in the east named sir ruckus who was like a dancer with his flail, like I was sitting there, he used like a fisherman's flail, but he was beautiful with it. He had so many different shots he was throwing at me, and and he, uh, especially for you wouldn't expect a guy of his size, his build, to be able to move like that. Mm. But I was really in awe of the man when I saw him, and it was one of those moments where like I didn't mind losing to that weapon because it wasn't just a 
niche shot. It wasn't just yeah. the same old thing. He he knew how to use it, which was pretty cool. Oh, definitely. And I I mean, on the other end of things, I absolutely agree. And that's the difference between the the skill floor and the skill ceiling. Sure. Uh, I was definitely inspired by Troll as a Florentine flail user. And he didn't use fisherman flails. He didn't need them. And what he could do was just nuts. Oh, the the speed he was capable of. Oh, yeah, let alone the shot types. Mm -hmm. And, like, the mental game is so heavy with that that you bring to the board. You're just, people just don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. They're like, whoa, flail, two flail. Uh, <laughs> two flail, <laughs> and it's it's such a it's such a high floor to get on. No, it was perfect. Just such a high high floor to climb onto. It's so apparent if someone doesn't know how to do it. Sure, and I know that especially from from trying and learning some. It's it's super mental game, and it's either switch on or switch off sure and switch on takes a lot of power and a lot of energy and what you can do in that is insane but switch switch off is like has the counter ability and so so excluding guys like troll and 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 ruckus who make flail look like an art form in of itself (laughs) the flail kind of went on its way out because of the meta shifting. Yeah. Um, and whatever the, the meta is right now will be shifting at, at some point, too. Because that's just the nature of the sport. I, I often hear older fighters being like, back in my day, back in my day. And it's like, do you not realize how time progresses? It goes linear in a forward fashion. Uh, so things are going to change. And if you're not anticipating that change, if you're not riding that wave, as it were... Uh, this this part of balancing is going to be harder because you're not going to know necessarily what is the effective counter for the effective meta. The same can be said for 40k. Uh, I mean, knowing the, the meta is absolutely crucial for anticipating what you might see at tournaments. If you know that there's going to be a lot of night-heavy lists, bringing something, bringing las cannons, bringing bright lances, something that can deal with that is is absolutely crucial. Rather than uh, if you know that it's going to be like right after the orc codex go out came out, I know that at least here uh, locally there was a lot of orc surgeons. I know I, I got some orcs myself, uh, and so being prepped for the fact that there were going to be orcs because you knew that there was a codex that just dropped, that's also something to be considered as well. Um, so a lot of these rules also apply for forty k. Speaking of which, uh, the line balancing things change. Call-outs, not so much. I mean, you, you can talk to your pieces. I definitely talk to my pieces. <laughs> I yell at my dice. Um, only nice things. Only encouragement. you got to be encouraging. Positive. Positive. I was just about to yell some of that encouragement, but I don't think it's right for young ears, so we're going to refrain from that. Um, but, um, so the, again, the rapid readjustments, either through stratagems or through actual movement or through deep striking... Uh, these are all part of that balancing, but in addition to that, in 40k, you also have stratagems that help you change the battlefield in perhaps unpredicted ways. I mean, I know we all know Agents of Vect, like it's not necessarily a surprise. You're going against Dark Eldar, they have some uh, agents or some, some Vect units on the board, you're getting Vect. That's just that's what's going to happen. But um, there is also an unknown factor 
Like, there's, there's some stratagems that aren't necessarily well-known or some armies that aren't necessarily well-known. I love my Dark Angels because a lot of people look at my army and they say, that's a really plasma-heavy army. How can that be effective? And I say, well, weapons of the Dark Age. That one stratagem makes my plasma weapons pretty good. Like, it takes them from doing one or two damage to doing two or three damage, which, in terms of 40k, is a lot. Um, especially when you've got Hellblasters. Oh. <laughs> God, I love those Hellblasters. Well, that's that's proper uh, scoping and measuring, you know, like right. looking through knowledge, knowledge of yourself, you know, learning what can these characters really do. Right. What kind of synergies, you know, what kind of setup can I do to maximize? And then the psychic powers as well, like in that same mm. idea, like what psychic powers are you taking that, that readjusts this balance? Because all psychers have smite. But, in, for instance, the Dark Angels, the vast majority of the psychic powers that we have, or the, the disciplines we have access to, are, are, not, are bad. It all deals with the opponent's leadership. So if you're dealing mm. with something with an abhorrently low leadership, so like a, a guard troop that's without a commissar... Worthless. Uh, that's about it. Um, but it's, it's, or some vehicles, I guess. But it's, it's just really hard. It's really hard to find a place where those, those abilities are going to be able to make a difference mm. uh, as opposed to the Zanich abilities which are absolutely outstanding and uh, while still kind of unpredictable do a lot of damage and and, and can absolutely readjust the, the nature of the battlefield a lot of armies have ways of switching out psychic powers mm. so if you took a psychic power that you're suddenly in a position where you realize that it's no longer useful or it wasn't useful to begin with you made a mistake there's nothing wrong with switching out a psychic power if you can for something that's actually going to be useful to you because mortal wounds are mortal wounds. I can't stress that enough. I love flamers and I love mortal wounds. <laughs> and big guns. I like 40K. I just like 40K. It sounds, sounds like an album t- title for sure. Flamers, mortal wounds, and big guns. Dude. I, right. It could be a band, but it would be, be pretty far out there. It would have to be like a prog rock. Mm, definitely or like a really 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 experimental EDM kind of sound (laughs) (laughs) oh do you like flame (laughs) flame as mortal wounds (laughs) a personal favorite oh lord yeah so that that, that'll be our next uh, next January dropping a a hot new album Oni and Malark Uh, don't look for it because we're not selling it um so victory (laughs) moving on to victory which is the whole point of all of this um the definition of victory is is fluid obviously it means beating your opponent but it doesn't mean taking their state intact does it mean taking a building or a resource intact does it mean capturing somebody in addition to that uh does it mean making sure that hostages are freed in the process like there's a lot there can be a lot of different objectives Mm. that that can say that there was a victory there's such a, a term as a, a Pyrrhic victory, and this is off of uh, a general who basically decimated his own army in order to gain a victory. And even though he, quote-unquote, won the battle, did Yeah, for what? <laughs> Overall, he did, he did terribly. Um, and so victory, we're talking about actual victory. Yay, we won. Um, the objectives were met. These conditions need to be a consideration way back in calculations. So when you're making your 100%. so if you've got battle types or game types that uh, that have the different objectives other than just killing your opponent, that needs to be a part way back there. Yeah, definitely. This is this is the final stage in the origami. 
your every fold has to have been right. And the more that it was off in measurement, just by a tiny little bit, the more weird edges there are going to be, the more discolored opposite side of the paper is going to be showing. Like, this is where you see the reflection of your decisions. Where you make it or break it. Truly. And so, again, just as in life, that those objectives can vary. And in Bellegarth, it, it matters. Are you, are you doing ring the bell? Is it capture the flag? Kill the king? Uh, all those victory conditions are going to be different and are going to look different. Normally in Bellegarth, we don't necessarily concern ourselves with the cost of the battle, the human <laughs> cost, as it were, um, because our lives are regenerated momentarily afterwards. Actual generals, actual soldiers need to be conscious of actual lives. But we have the luxury of being able to run in with reckless abandon and not care necessarily about the outcome of the battle in terms of the cost of life. Right. So in Bell, especially, though, on the other hand, there are quite a few game types that it's overlooked uh, this this factor, 100%, the victory. Uh, Kill the King forces you, for example, to have to take that into consideration, to have to fight around one person's importance, however strong, weak, aggressive, or defensive they may be. I'm a terrible king. Yeah, some <laughs> really, really good fighters have a very hard time being a king uh, purely just because of they cannot do what they normally do. And it's it can be difficult. And uh, a lot of fights, this is, this is different in uh, California, reminds me very specifically because it's not something that we do very often other, on, other than when one person and uh, it was a, a staged battle that had like a theme and some some specific rules that had to be adhered to and there were uh, quite a few key fighters on the field and when there are that many hundred people on the field i cannot properly <laughs> describe how difficult it is to pin out a specific fighter sure. in such a manner like oh, they're wearing a band, they're wearing a specific item. It's like, you that's the last thing on your mind when you're fighting for your life sometimes. True. <laughs> unless, unless you're already properly taking things into account and measurement, and you're already assessing who are these people, do I know these people, place them in your mind in a specific spot, that way when it happens, you're ready He's immediately. Yeah, and so that, that immediate response, that invincibility that we were talking about, like a, a prearranged situation. Um, there's also, not to interject, but there's no, one more thing that I think really is overlooked a lot in standard battles, and that's stand and deliver, yeah. which is a regular fight for uh, most realms. You know, it's a good, like, anywhere from 8 to 40, 50 man game where it's fun to to balance. Uh, maybe 40 man max, 50s. I mean, you're yeah, running I, 25s. Yeah. A single man a fight isn't going to change. Especially too. if you got people from, a, I guess if it's all one realm, it's one thing. But if you got people from all sorts of different places who don't know each other, stand delivers harder. Because you're like, hey, you, you. and the kit, <laughs> stuff. 
Yeah, you guy, guys, spear guy, spear, spear guy with the with the thing, with the with the outfit. That guy. Yeah, you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, 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 not you. The yeah. one, the one on the left. That oh, yeah. Other left. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> too uh, real. I, and I see that too. I see that with with new groups and stuff like that. But um, the victory is is really important. If you go in there and key fighters go down hard because of uh, miscalculation, you know, mismeasurement earlier in the fight, it's going to be really apparent next round because they won't be on your team. Right. And I think that's something that a lot of at least, you know, small field like this fights could really benefit from that kind of mindfulness. Well, perhaps I was wrong. The, the value of the fighter does uh, exist. Not in the same way. Again, you're still not actually dying. But as you said, you might be losing a very valuable fighter. Um, and that's that's absolutely something to be considered. Uh, perhaps a Pyrrhic victory at mm. that point. Um, uh, this is kind of the same for 40k. You don't always have to kill your entire opponent's army uh, in order to win. Most of, the most of us outside of Europe, if we have listeners in Europe, hello... Um, but if, uh, but most, most people are, are playing by ITC, International Tournament Circuit Rules. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of ways to win, even if you don't necessarily have the most uh, dudes on the board at the end. Uh, for example, that last game I was talking about with Kaji, with my orcs, I had a really strong beginning, really strong middle. Then his Grey Knights dropped in in their Terminator armor. You like Terminators, Oni. I do. Uh, I yeah. do like the Terminators. Uh, Kaji does too. And, and uh, they... Destroyed my orcs. It yeah. was, and so my trucks, my trucks kind of won me that battle because they stayed back on the objectives and just generated mm. points for me. If I hadn't had them there, that would have been twelve points over the course of the battle that I wouldn't have got. And I that was That's about huge. what I led by. So, yeah, game breaking. I, so it wasn't necessarily my offense that won me that game. It was getting those points in a, in a more subtle way. So remember that it's not always absolutely destroying your opponent. There are other ways to win. As, well, in this case, Sun Tzu's wrong. There's no way to win without coming to battle. <laughs> That's a kumbaya moment, and we frown on those. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> at least until afterwards. afterwards. Mm, then, then we can sing kumbaya at the EDM. Is there an EDM? <laughs> That's terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, more. My attempt. Um, <laughs> oh, it was good. I liked it. So, uh, moving on from my my terrible EDM impression question. Mark. Impersonation. Impersonation. We'll go with impersonation. Um, the battle today is Aqua Sexte, and. I cannot say that word without thinking awkward sex tape. That's that's not what we're talking oh about. Oh my god. <laughs> but I'm just going to make that 15-year-old <laughs> joke right up front. I, I understand it sounds like awkward sex tape. I'm going to try not to say that too much. Uh, but Well, that's two down already. As, as adults, <laughs> as adults, we're going to try not to say awkward sex tape anymore. Uh, <laughs> Aqua sex tape uh, happened in 102... Uh, BC, and it was a, a Roman engagement under Marius, and uh, they were having trouble with Germans. This is one of the many German migrations that were moving into Roman territory, and they were driven, being driven uh, westward by other tribes that were being driven westward by other tribes. It was this whole displacement issue um, that eventually ended with Rome collapsing. But this particular battle, um, Claudius Marcellus 
demonstrated this invincibility principle, coming in and, and taking the fight to an enemy who has already been beaten. And how he did this is I want you to imagine a box canyon, which is to say that there's one way in and one way out, and hills on three sides. Uh, but this was a valley, so it was a bit more sloped. There's ways up on either sides, heavily forested, up on the hills, but down in the middle, uh, completely barren. So what the Romans do is they set up what, what they look what looks like their main force at the far end of this box valley, in plain sight, where they can be seen. Uh, the other larger portions of the force move onto the sides, to either to either side of the valley, and hide themselves amongst the trees. So, when the Germans approach the valley, all they see is the army at the far end. And at this point, what kind of ratio is the German force against this uh, one up-front, forward-sided, uh, what they potentially believe to be the only units? So, the reported numbers are 3,000 to 100,000 thereabouts, and that's the numbers reported by Plutarch. And that's overall, that's with overall. the side groups as well. I th- I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, yeah. That's ugly. That's and ugly. S- so if they're looking at that smaller portion tucked on the backside of this valley, the Germans are probably pretty hyped thinking they can squash us. Oh, sure. They see this tiny, tiny Roman force at the underside compared to their vast numbers and think, easy, easy victory. And so they come into the valley, and uh, like I said, before the battle, they, they place these men on the sides, ready to ambush, but they're not moving yet. Um, as, as the Germans approach Marius, they have to come uphill, because he's up, up on, this, on this hillside quite a bit, and so they're coming up this hill, slogging it to where the entrenched legionnaires are. And at this point, I want to talk to you about what the Germans were going to be seeing there. So the Germans themselves think basically a ragtag group of warriors. They have scavenged a lot of their gear at this point, so some of them might have armor, most of them don't. Um, Some of them might have serviceable weapons, most of them really don't. What they have is numbers and kind of a crude tribal strength Mm. on their side. Yeah. Um, The German, or the Romans on the other hand, have the best training of the area, uh, of the era in the area. Um, they have the best equipment, uh, which would have at this time been a very large shield that kind of curved around them, uh, a gladius, which we would consider like a short sword, mm. and then pila, which uh, we would call javelins. Uh, but they, they were designed for a different purpose. Uh, they were weak in the head and shaft portion, but had a very large weight toward the back where you would grip, like the handle. Mm. And they were designed to punch into a shield and then bend either hobbling your movement or making you have to discard the shield because now it's ungainly. Mm. So it wasn't necessarily a... It, it was a damage-dealing weapon, but it was also supposed to jack up your equipment if it hit it as well. A uh, meta-breaker. Yep. So this is what the Germans were advancing uphill into, was this, this heavily fortified, um, well-trained, well-equipped force. They hit it, and they start to break. They're just, they just don't have what it takes to get into these Romans, and so they start to fall back in order to maybe reposition, flank, or something along those lines. And this is when the side forces come down. As the German forces are breaking, as their order has already been compromised, 
the forces come down off of the hills, and 100,000 Germans perish. At that point, it's complete failure to act under that situation yep. for the Germans. They're, like I was talking about, the reactive. You have to be prepared for these kinds of situations if you're not. All those troops that have been under-trained, that are under-geared, they don't know what is happening. Nope. The front line knows a little bit of what's happening because they just tried to fight an uphill battle with no shields in whatever kind of muddy, awesome, gnarly situations against these crazy Romans. And now they're seeing way more of those crazy Romans just appear out of the trees and start wrecking all their friends behind them. Well, it was a complete rout. Yeah. Just a complete rout. Uh, yeah, and, and it didn't... Obviously, the Romans aren't still around. They eventually succumbed to barbarian pressure and, and had to split and become different empires, which became different times, and, and now it is history. Now it is a memory that we teach on podcasts. Um... <laughs> So, they're, 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 uh, but in this particular battle, Marius can, uh, cavorted himself well. Um, or, is that the right word? Did I just combine two words? I think I Shakespeare'd that. Mm, um, very nice. But yeah, so that was the Battle of, battle of Aque Sexte. Um, did you have any questions on it? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, what was that noise at the end? What was, what was that? That was the cat being fed in the other room. Uh, my my wife's mm-hmm. voice is on an auto feeder, uh, and that is what makes him bolt into the other room. So if it sounded like a very quiet cat torpedo, um, that was that would be why. Mm. Yeah, truly. <laughs> After the Roman victory, they fed their cats. They had to. Uh, it contributed to victory. No, that's Egyptians. My bad. My bad. <sighs> Next time. Next time. Maybe. Hmm. Oh. We can we can do one of those misleading next times, you know, where we just we tell them mm, yeah. Next time on the Art of Wargaming, do chimpanzees like grapes? We won't be discussing that, by the way. <laughs> Nothing probably close to that. Um mm. so now my mind now my mind's stirring, you know. <laughs> how does this how is this applicable to uh, warfare and wargaming, uh, the great monkey and ape grape war. I could see it. Um, I'm not sure if that movie would sell in this current time. Um, <laughs> you know, the last part I... of the apes just bombed. It just bombed in the office. <laughs> Maybe they need this new angle. Maybe uh, it's they... true. There just wasn't enough grapes last time. That's 100% fix the problem. Got it. Hollywood, are you listening? Grapes. <laughs> it's all in the grapes. But anyways, back with the awkward sex tape. I mean, aqua vitae. Aqua sex tape. I took Latin, too. I love Latin. This is just a hard, hard series. You set words. yourself up for it. It was good comedy gold. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's pretty cut and dry. Marius clutched it. He came in invincible. Uh, just like what Sun Tzu was saying here, he came in, practiced in his excellence, uh, fighting an enemy who had already been beaten. Uh, his troops knew what to do. They were regulated well. His his compass led him to exactly where he needed to be, and he stomped. He just stomped. And the reason why is because 
every one of those steps were a part of how he dealt with this. Yep, he and scoped it, he scoped the land, took the measure of the numbers, figured out how to use his numbers well, calculated the, the strategy that would be winning, and then balanced accordingly for the timing of when to go. Victory was assured. Fantastic. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it when history presents us such a cut and dry case for the for these examples. I I am uh, always a gigantic fan of fighting outnumbered. So next week uh, we will be back and we will be discussing momentum. Um, thank you again to Nightmare Box Presents for having us and Brett and Kristen, Kristen especially for dealing with the edits that uh, no <laughs> doubt she's going to have to do. Thank you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, you got any final words, Oni? Slay on. Slay on, stay warm, drink water. Until next time.